everyone, welcome to Type Talks. Today we have Harry from Cognitive Personality Theory with us today. And he's here to share about his scientific study that he's going to be unleashing on the personality types. And he would love to have your participation to get as many data points as possible. We're here to get as many people to sign up so that we're able to help Harry on his mission to make type scientific in his own, in his own way. So yeah, I'll have the link below. And so, Harry, would you like to share a little bit about what it is? Absolutely. So um, for the past nine months or so, I've been involved in a master's program at Edinburgh University in the psychology of individual differences. So as you might imagine, there's a lot of personality psychology stuff um, within there. And for my dissertation, which is going to be my first ever psychology research paper, which is exciting, um, I'm focusing upon what you can kind coin uh, intra-individual variation within personality. So the, stu the study that I'm going to be conducting is going to be looking at personality change and stability within the individuals. So essentially every participant in the study is going to be kind of ideographically pinpointed with their own specific kind of profile of change and stability in respect to certain things. So the study isn't necessarily about saying some people are more fluid than other people. It's more saying people differ in the way that they're fluid in response to different situations, for example, or people differ in a way they're stable in certain situations more than other ones. So it's important that I don't say too much about the study for the sake of like ensuring people like don't inadvertently become like primed, for example, to start reporting in a certain way. I don't want to vote. I don't want to bias the audience in any way, shape or form, but I can safely say, the study is looking at the kind of profiles of change. So that means anyone participating in the study can just answer naturally, organically, any kind of questionnaires that come up throughout the day in a kind of experience sampling methodology, which I can get more into later if you want. Um, and then we can kind of start conducting research together. And it's going to be exciting to have like YouTuber and YouTube audience participating in a psychological study. I think this might be a first. <laughs> This is going to be really interesting because you've already racked up 200 people participating. And so, yeah, um, this is going to be a way for Harry to analyze the data and to put themes and patterns to it that he can share with his audience and with the whole typology sphere as a, in a large. So, yeah, the more people participate, the more fun, you know. So, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so if you want in on the fun and in on the psychology, you can help Harry on his mission. All right. And so I'm curious, Harry, you mentioned a little bit about your methodology. And so I was wondering if you go into that. Sure. So I'm using a methodology called experience sampling, um, which is essentially a longitudinal form of like what's called ambulatory assessment methods, which you know, is actually much simpler than it sounds. It's essentially a, a way to kind of capture people within their day. A lot of what certain psychological studies have suffered from, especially historically, is taking people out of their ordinary context and then measuring them and then saying, okay, we've proved this. And it's like, well, you haven't proved this necessarily because the external validity has essentially went down by taking people out of their normal habitat. Um, so experience sampling is essentially a way of kind of monitoring everyone who's participating in a study just by essentially giving them an app to download, a secure app called Semethry in this instance. And then they can kind of report on their, you know, the certain characteristics that I'll be measuring throughout the study about twice a day, essentially, over the course of four weeks. So it's a lot of data points within data points, essentially, lots of observations. And the methods of analyses you do in order to actually measure all those changes over time is actually pretty cool as well. So I'm excited to be conducting it. Yeah, sounds really great. So huzzah, I'm also going to register too and to to get everyone to, to try it out too. Um, yeah, and so with that being said, Today, I'm here with Harry to talk about his concept of networks, which he's only talked about on his Patreon as of today. And so I'm curious, uh, let's let's launch a little bit into that. So could you tell me a bit about that? Okay, so this is um, some theoretically heavy stuff. So I might try and keep it like um, high level and we can get into the nitty gritty um, if we want to. But the premise of the actual idea um, is essentially seeking to explain the extent to which people can change their cognitive gateways. So this is a CPT specific term. So I need to kind of build that up a little bit first. If you look at, let's say you're an extroverted intuitive dominant. So, you know, you have extroverted intuition in that position. Well, it can serve within CPT as a gateway to another function. 
And that's like a dip. So if you dip from extroverted intuition into introverted intuition, or you dip from extroverted intuition to extroverted sensing. So these kind of planes, these continuums of movement, essentially. So it's a gateway into a pathway. So a network is an extension of this idea. Because while CPT has so far managed to explain how people can vary within the type across certain channels, if that makes sense, across certain pathways from one gateway into another gateway, for example, it hasn't actually yet explained how people can change their actual gateways, if that makes sense. So as an INFJ, for example, you could say, how would Harry become you know, an extroverted thinking gateway, for example? Yeah, okay, he's dipping from introverted thinking to extroverted thinking, but what happens if he dips from extroverted thinking into introverted thinking? So a network is essentially a representation of a switching our cognitive functions around to some extent. And the fact is type is not this static kind of thing that we stay in throughout the day and that we're kind of subordinate to. There's a lot of fluidity going on. A type itself is just a kind of generalistic property of stability over time. But within the day, we can have fluctuations. So Joyce, I can get more into like the specifics of it if you want, but that's like a high level understanding of like um, how you can see a cognitive type and then you can say like, okay, ISTP, what about ESTJ, for example? What happens if they go into that type? Because it's nearby. So it's about like types that are more local to other types and the idea of like us being able to hop along into types which are more lo local to us in the sense that they don't have as much cognitive resistance to go into as maybe ISTP into something like ISFP. <laughs> you can jump to your neighboring type just like a path of least resistance. If there are similarities between you two, you can access that state for a momentary time throughout your day-to-day, because -day. throughout your day-to-day, -day, you are not static. And so you can access different selves or different behaviors that resemble different types. There is a level of malleability within human beings. And so hmm. with type, because we are malleable and because there is neuroplasticity and then there is something called epigenetics too, which is how you can repress or express certain parts of your DNA depending on your environment. So you might have that core base of that type, but what traits get expressed or repressed depend on your environment. And you can even develop things that are out of preference, just like how people who whose dominant hand is the right hand, it's not like they can't write with their left hand anyways, especially people who slide more on the ambidextrous scale. So there's a level of fluidity even with other preferences, such as hand preference. And so it would naturally translate that with personality type, you also have a level of fluidity even with things that you don't prefer as much. You can still be competent or skilled at it. I think that's a really cool concept, Harry. And because we're talking about science today, there's something that neuroscientists call salience networks. So you might have a network in your brain that you use the most often. You might call this your primary cognitive type, but you can also extend beyond that. Typically your, your salience network will be within the same general realm, even if it will change over time and be fluid over time. And so, yeah, fluidity and having a type preference don't have to be paradoxical or they don't have to be either or. They don't, you don't have to just mm -hmm. choose one. They both can be true in different ways. As you were saying, Harry, you mentioned how any dominant can access their NI. And so mm -hmm. there are a lot of NTPs who feel like they use NI or NFPs who feel like they use NI at certain times. Mm -hmm. And it's like, oh, it'll, it'll actually give them a way to put it. So they might actually be truly reaching into NI for that certain period of state. Mm -hmm. They're dipping into it, as you talked about. So which can make figuring out their type confusing, I could see, because they might mm -hmm. be identifying more with their day-to-day -day behaviors of accessing the mm -hmm. INFJ mode from time to time rather than being a primary INFJ network. So, totally. Exactly, yeah. because sometimes we might, we might notice more what's intentional rather than natural, if you know what I mean. Like in the times when we remember things more as well, might be times of stress. And when we're going into a, left, a more resistant network, that might be stressful for us, and we might remember us doing that more. Or we might be kind of like going through a self-image metamorphosis where we're trying to like focus upon what we can be rather than what we are, if that makes sense. And we can confuse self-concept with our current behavioral output as well. So yeah, all kinds of things. 
Yeah, and it causes people to be confused about their type all the time. And mm. so here's a tangible example to put it down in the sensory for people who would like that. So the word planning, a lot of people can see themselves planning in different contexts. Like, let's say a lot of types can think they're an INTJ because they plan and they're like, I can relate to that. And people describe <laughs> INTJs as planners. So I must be an INTJ. Whereas it really depends on how you go about and your approach to planning. Say, for example, an ENFP type or an ESFP type might relate to planning because it's so stressful for them when they're when they're planning. It's way more obvious because they're doing it out loud and they don't feel comfortable. It doesn't feel natural for them. So they notice it more. They're actually more aggressive with it sometimes, too. And also they might be aware of their tendency that if they don't plan, they don't fall through the cracks. And so they're aware of the avalanche effect of not planning. So they're like, oh, no. So if I don't plan or be overly rigid about it, then I might forget to plan. And then I might mess up everything because they, they're aware of their tendency to be in chaos and lean in and dance to that. So because they're so aware of their planning tendency, they might be like, oh, I must be a J type because I plan. Yeah. Whereas they, it's like, no, it doesn't necessarily work that way. Everyone plans. Yeah. And even like with the ENTP type, they might see themselves as a planner too. The reason why that is, is because they do plan. A lot of any dominance contingency plan because they want to have every single contingency thought out beforehand, before they do the thing. And so in a sense, it's a different kind of planning than how an INTJ would plan because the ENTP is thinking about all the possibilities and planning for all the possibilities, which is an NE form of planning. And mm -hmm. so... Planning does not necessarily equal INTJ. So that's another no, form no. of people accessing their INTJ network for a moment in time or something that looks like an INTJ network mm -hmm. when it isn't mm -hmm. actually their primary mode the whole time. Exactly. And I think you bring up a really, really good point there, Joyce, as well, in regards to, you know, the concept of planning. You know, sometimes people can confuse um, what certain cognitive functions, for example, with a ubiquitous human behavior. Um, or say that like a cognitive function in a certain position might do this ubiquitous human behavior more. Um, it's really important to note, like when we're talking about cognitive functions and stuff, we're talking about very narrow nuances of human individual variation. We're not talking about high level stuff like openness on a big five and stuff. We're talking about really narrow and subtle things. That means it wouldn't make so much sense for the behaviors we attribute to these narrow and subtle things to be very broad and ubiquitous, like something like planning. As Joyce mentions, Planning can mean a very different thing depending upon a cognitive network you're inhabiting. Actually, planning has a different definition for every single cognitive network, um, which is every single cognitive type, for example. So it's just important to bear in mind that the narrower we're getting into this ideographic realm of individual differences, the more specific and refined we have to be with our terminology and what we mean by what we say. Yeah, so it's all about looking at the why people do things rather than the just the behavior itself. Sure. And so another way to put this too is with the word routines. And so routines is heavily associated with the SJ types or specifically the SI dominant types. So mm -hmm. the ISTJ mm -hmm. and the ISFJ are, are the most put into the word routine because especially ISTJ though, because they have SITE. So they're both very structured mm -hmm. functions. The SI is wanting consistency of the sensory and then the TE is wanting logical order and structure in the world. So ISTGs have the biggest stereotype for routines out of all yeah. types. Now, a lot of people can relate to the word routine because people have routines. Maybe an EP type may be totally opposed to that, like an ESTP or an ENFP who doesn't like routines. Maybe, oh, maybe, maybe not me. But a lot of people eventually want to set routines. We're in a culture where we exonerate routines because it helps with efficiency and we're in a very TE culture. So everyone wants routines to survive and not die in the world. Then how do you separate it from the ISTJ's desire for a routine versus the other types that have routines but aren't ISTJs? You could look into why someone does something. So the reason why an ISTJ would want a routine is different than why other types would want routines. So because of the introverted sensing, there's a desire for reliability or stability or being able to depend on a consistent sensory outcome. And so when you have a routine, it helps ensure an, an outcome that is stable and predictable and that you can count on and so that you know it'll go well. And so when an ISTJ doesn't always have the stability of a routine, what can happen is they can spiral into negative extroverted intuition possibilities. 
And so their routine is their way of not spiraling into extroverted intuition in a negative form so that they can have some sort of stability with the sensory world. Like the sensory is known. I can trust in the success of the sensory so that I don't have to worry about things going off kilter, especially with the extroverted thinking, wanting things to be a certain specific structured way in, in the outside world. So anyways, as you can see from this example, everyone can enjoy routines, but an ISTJ may need a routine for them to be psychologically well and comfortable. It helps them psychologically too, on a very deep level. They may not do the exact same thing for other people who do routines. Exactly. Um, I just want to like mention a quick on the back of that as well, Joyce, just for example, like if I'm coaching, you know, the diametrically opposed type, that'll be ENFP um, in this sense. Um, I might like tell them like, you know, because they're stereotyped as being an anti-routine type, for example, and then I might let them see like the way in which they do like routines, you know, the way in which they're attuned to the SIFI, which kind of like automatically kind of programs a certain behavior in some ways. It programs like a, a deep sense of need, for example. I need this right now. This is going to be good for me right now. I want to act on this, for example. And it might seem very spontaneous and erratic to other people, but it's actually very organized within themselves. And then you can also kind of look to NE and TE and then say like, I might like coach ENFPs, for example, to kind of have pocket spaces in time and space um, to say like, okay, well, this can be an hour for this, or this can be a space in which you can just lose your sense of time because that might be healthy for like an any dominant, for example. And so like that can be organized and that can be structured and then that can be routine. Even if nothing structure is happening within that space, actually creating that space to begin with within a day requires a lot of organization and routine, you can say. Yeah, exactly, Harry. And, and so with ENFPs, one of the ways to also get them to access their introverted sensing is through their introverted feeling. So if you can make it important to the introverted feeling, it's easier mm -hmm. to sell them on the introverted sensing portion of it. Okay. So that's why ENFPs and INFPs are known for nostalgia because it resonates with their introverted feeling. So then it resonates with their introverted sensing through an emotional recalling of the exact past. Mm -hmm. um, and it carries through for other types too, for an ENTP to care about their introverted sensing. They tend to access it through introverted thinking. So you'll have a selectively anal slob, like someone who is very precise about certain details, but it just lets others go to the waste too. <laughs> Accurate. <laughs> cool. I'm wondering, Harry, how does this network idea show up in you? What, what kind of networks do you fluently exchange from? I love that question. Um, there's a network I use in particular that might seem counterintuitive to people, um, but one I actually use quite a lot and one that I've developed, especially in like really kind of like, how to say it, vended more kind of neuroplastic since starting this YouTube channel and taking clients, for example, has been an ESFJ network um, rather than that kind of intense ENFJ, which actually I still struggle to activate that. It's very intense and harmonious, really locked into a person, really getting on the same page um, emotionally, like a kind of dance. I find it a lot easier when I'm using extroverted feeling in a more active way, for example, to kind of present a more kind of generalized, like agreeableness, if that makes sense, a more adaptable F-E-N-E kind of slant. And when I'm doing that and when I'm in that state, I have more of an SI kind of authority. I do seek a kind of like a sense of communal, common ground um, and precedent in my actions. So actually I have a big ESFJ network going on that I don't really talk to people a lot about. People in the videos, especially in my pre-recorded videos, see a lot of kind of like TI-ishness and NI-ishness, lots of theory and rationality and et cetera. But I have this lighthearted kind of goofy F-E-N-E side that uh, people in real life especially see a lot more. <laughs> I feel like ESFJ is the most stereotypical customer service front or persona <laughs> that you can put yeah, up. Yeah. So if someone's doing interviews, like even me, like I put up a ISFJ front when I do interviews, mm -hmm. which is like, <laughs> which I can appear for a moment, I can give off ISFJ or ESFJ mannerisms. Like FENE is very good for social context, for interviews, for customer mm -hmm. service for being likable. If, if you're in a situation where you need to be likable, an ESFJ front is a good one to access for that moment. <laughs> it's really interesting as well. Like ESFJs I've met, especially if they happen to have ADHD diagnosed with them, which is interesting. They seem to have like a strong INFJ network as well. They like, they get into this kind of like this 
abstract philosophical, but like very unspecific um, land, which you know would come would contradict the notion of them having SITI in a lot of ways because they're supposed to be very specific and they need grounded truth. But if you get them to relax, like really open up, they can get into that sort of state, which seems uncannily NI-ish a lot of the time. So there is a lot of variance going on here that like sometimes we'll act a certain way and then other times we really are feeling and our brains lighting up in a certain way because it's easier. It's easier to talk to you at the moment, George, for example, with, you know, trying to resist going into like the NI abstraction all the time. Because if I was doing that, I probably wouldn't be very here and now, if that makes sense. Um, I like to use a bit of extroverted intuition in general when I'm doing live improvised kind of calls um, too. So that means I'll kind of resist any kind of like pre-determined um, script, for example, that I'm going to run or pre-determined kind of ideas that I do want to talk about because then it can just let certain functions which are more kind of, how to say it, um, are just kind of in for my own personal enjoyment and experience better suited to the occasion than my primary ones. <laughs> yeah, it totally makes sense to access your extroverted functions or even extra, like any extroverted function in an interaction because they're, they're mm -hmm. more adaptable, flexible, mm -hmm. and quick and fast with how they, in the moment are processing that thing with you. So yeah, that is another way of being fluid in your type. But yeah, there, there are ESFJs who are actually very heavily in tune with their extroverted intuition that like an, an FE, any loop can look like an NI thing because it eventually, yeah. when you throw in enough any ideas, you get to a deep NI insight. Yeah. Like any users are oftentimes describe their ideas like fishes laying eggs. And if you lay thousands of eggs, there's bound to be a few that are very, that are very meaningful. And especially the ESFJ with their SI or FE might emotionally, limbically concretize an any mm -hmm. idea to make it look like an NI idea too. So it could be them fluidly going to INFJ mode or their SI is concretizing an NI mm -hmm. idea into their precedence structure. So I think the good thing about this stuff is it has multiple different ways of explaining the same phenomena. Um, what I will say is what I've definitely found to be the case consistently, especially as become more like specific in what I'm measuring, is a single type can only explain so much of the variance of an individual's cognition. Um, so you need to find ways of explaining the variance outside of maybe the 60% or 70% that, for example, an INTP um, classification or category might be able to do. So it's like, I think the dominant type, the primary network, so to speak, captures a lot of the variation and can also explain behaviors which seem out of type just by combining different type functions together in the network to create an emergent property, for example, via behavior. But there's definitely other stuff going on um, as well, like we talked about uh, before in terms of plasticity and such things. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you, you can't use extroverted feeling to screw in um, to screw in a light bulb, so to speak. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's true. And yeah. a lot of things are outside of type too, like life experience, mm. trauma, mm. your birth order, your attachments mm. style, and so. But influence it at the same time. There's kind of a, an entanglement between the internal and external in that way. Everything connects to everything and it influences everything, so, mm. yeah. I mean, there are like, um, yeah, there's that kind of that John Beebe model. I'm not a massive fan of the Beebe model myself, partially because of the attribution of like certain mythological archetypes and stuff to certain function positions when I just think it's not that simple. Um, but, you know, they are the four sides of the mind, for example, within that theory. So the idea of people going into different types isn't necessarily a new one. The only yeah. difference that CPT is brought here is like explaining how we can go into lots of different types rather than just a select few. Yeah. Yeah, the, the four sides of the mind is also a John Beebe concept, too. He, he's NE, so he makes up a lot of different concepts. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so the networks theory is very similar to four sides of the mind, but instead of four sides, it's your 16 sides of the mind. Or exactly. an infinite. Oh, we can, we can split it as much as we want to, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you access an ESFJ network when you're doing interviews or or in public speaking engagements. So I'm wondering about even in the other areas of your life, aside from that, what other mm -hmm. networks, even on top of that, do you have access? <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> my girlfriend especially has noticed a lot of NETE going on <laughs> when I'm kind of, uh, especially like, I don't know, 
when I've got energy to spare, essentially, my inner peace side comes out a lot more. Um, I can be quite bombastic and all over the place, like, oh, that thing and that thing, and everybody over to that thing. And sort of like, it's not just NITI on steroids per se, it's actually just a lot of kind of free form ideation where I don't necessarily see my intuitive thinking, it's more blind when I'm doing that kind of thing. Um, so that's kind of fun. Um, I definitely, <laughs> within the network theory kind of perspective, I have got this kind of ENTJ-ish side. I'm still trying to like fully explain what's going on there. I don't want to jump to conclusions, but within the formula that I talk about on my Patreon, for example, it fits the formula and sort of, so the TESE is technically accessible from a formula related to degrees of like compulsivity um, within functions, but just on a high level. An ENTJ kind of network within myself has become, been a lot stronger in previous parts of my life when I've been a lot more kind of TE leading in the way that I talk. <laughs> um, that softened up a lot lately. And I also have less of that introverted intuitive authority drive to kind of have to have something a certain way for the sake of kind of genuine desire or desire for kind of like leverage, for example, or what have you. So it's interesting talking about it kind of like on a very high level without getting into the nitty gritty. Um, but I mean, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that sounds really cool. So your NETE side, you access an ENFP mm -hmm. side of your mind. Oh, yes. <laughs> How does that look um, like? What does that look like? Great question. Um, I think sometimes people can see it coming through in my live streams when I drop the FENE and kind of just go straight into bombastic. Well, I'm just enjoying myself right now. It's like it's not like there's a there becomes a disconnect at then here almost between myself and other people where like the FI becomes more isolated and it's just it's enjoying its own state for its own sake. And the external kind of possibilities and ideations are just like a means of kind of satiating my own desire, if that makes sense. And it kind of like can become surprisingly detached from the FE, the person in between one and another, for example. Um, so yeah, that's what it can, can look like in times. It can be a little bit, I'm not gonna say abrasive because it's playful and nice and good natured in that way, but it can kind of become a little bit self-absorbed. <laughs> yeah, it seems like it's your fun side when, when you are letting loose and you're being yeah. fun, Harry, not just serious CPT. Not Harry. serious, um, exactly, mm, exactly. Yeah. CPT is quite a serious theory because I guess I, I had a lot of like, and I still have a lot of like passion in regards to like the altruistic kind of implications of it and kind of trying to free people from the prison of label, for example, telling them there's more to them than just like these functions, et cetera. And also at the same time, trying to get people to understand each other in a way that actually allows more nuance to be communicated because when people kind of jump straight into typology, they can actually limit the amount of information they're getting from someone rather than truly knowing someone they just say oh you're an enfj now i've all got all the information i need in my cdti framework and that means i'm going to stop asking you questions about yourself for example so it's like there's a lot of altruistic reasons behind cpt and my own particular approach and my own reason collaborating in, um, in this community um but and i think that's why it's very serious and i am very serious when i'm talking about it in some ways but Outside of that, I can be surprisingly kind of just bubbly and I'm not going to say wild because I don't really have the extroverted energies to be a wild person, but um, I can be silly. <laughs> yeah, it's just in Harry has a silly side. <laughs> when the NITI feels like it's on a mission, because NI has a detachment towards the world sometimes, so it, it creates this like very holistic theory and, and then there can create this purpose of this this has real implications that it could really help people. So it can create a, a seriousness. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I guess sometimes staying in the seriousness too long, it gets stale. And so even there's incentive to go outside your network because after a while of being too much of yourself, that, yeah. that, that there's a lot of new information. You don't have enough extroversion to get more external worlds feedback so then now you want to be a little silly because when you go too much one way there's a part of you that wants to individuate and go the other way and so you'll you'll have a strong pull towards accessing more extroverted versions of yourself mm -hmm. after too much serious introverted time so yeah because if you lock it in just a single network you're building tension in the brain over time you're in, you're in this weird kind of state of like um how would i say like discipline almost like even if it's kind of addictive to stay in your type, it does take a certain level of kind of like intentional 
it just takes a lot of willpower to stay in one network for a prolonged amount of time because you're automatically telling your brain, no, you can't go there. No, you can't go there. That's bad. That's bad. You have to stay over here because we have work to do, et cetera. So yeah, as George said, like staying in NITI for too long can just really just build a lot of anxiety, if I'm being honest. And you just need to like, remember, okay, the weight of the world is not on my shoulders. I'm sharing it with other people too. <laughs> it's true, yeah. <laughs> Well, that's good because you do have people who want to shoulder that weight with you as well. So then I'm curious and I want to try to understand something while you're in ESFJ mode. I wonder if there's still a part of you that's always still in your INFJ network, even if you're also in your, your ESFJ network. So for instance, like you might be put on, on this socially, socially sweet exterior and adapting to the patterns of the outside world. But they're still with INFJs, I know, there's a level of detachment to them. So they're still like introverted mm -hmm. intuition on its own as a dominant function creates an immense amount of detachment because you feel like you're an observer of the world. If you zoom in too much, everything is a data point or, or a detail and that's not interesting mm -hmm. to the NI dominant. So NI mm -hmm. dominants live in a zoomed out state. Like even if they're not aware that they are, there's this feeling of a, a detachment even if or even if it's just ex internally experienced it's mm. still there so that like the infj core of feeling like an analytical or detached person looking at the patterns of the world is still there even if it's esfj mode on the outside or even um, you're experiencing the joy of the esfj mode mm, i think that's a really beautiful question i think uh, there's multiple different angles we can take it from um, i'll start with this one um, we can go back to what we were talking about with regards to memory before as well. Like when we're talking about memory, like that informs our self-concept and that informs what we think we're doing a lot of the time. We'll tend to like remember maybe what is consonant with our own kind of perception of ourself. I am used to looking at life through kind of like a, a looking glass, so to speak. I'm used to that feeling. Um, as I've become more mindful of my cognition over time and just genuinely more curious about my state throughout the entire day rather than just the types of the day when it's convenient to my own particular ego agenda, I do notice, oh yeah, this isn't this isn't through a looking glass right now. This is a genuine connection. Oh, but why why am I suddenly so frustrated when things aren't going according to a certain procedure? Like I'm not usually like that. I'm usually detached from procedures. So like there are like when I'm going, that's how like I know it might be in type network, for example, because I'm seeing not only the freedom in one area but i'm also seeing the constriction in another area that isn't usually constricted and when you have those kind of dualities going on that can indicate a type rather than just a mask that is so so true harry so you could truly be flipping into the network of another type completely and that's mm -hmm. totally possible and in some situations too it could be that you're fulfilling your primary network's needs through another network so for yes. instance yeah, you actually meet some INTJs who are actually very detail oriented, but they're detail oriented, like they're in their SI there, and they are truly in an SI mode where they're making sure everything's perfect detail wise. Now, they're doing this because they want the overall idea, the NI idea to be communicated in the most clear and coherent way possible. So to accomplish the NI means of this mission or this grander vision that they see, they know that the details are important for that to be properly communicated and and so, yeah, in some ways we do fully flip into other networks and in other ways it can also be helping us accomplish the means of our primary mm -hmm. network. That's really well said. I think um, looking at it in that way as well fits better with, you know, the pre-existing, um, how to say, <laughs> dominant network, I suppose. If you do have a dominant network, it's probably dominant for a reason. Like, let's say we're in 70% of the time, even we're in this primary network, because maybe it's what we spend when we're sleeping, for example. Um, it would therefore explain when we go to other types, it will be at the behest of an agenda, for example. It will be at the behest of a particular need or be at the behest of a primary way of regulating our own emotions, which is a cool way of understanding what a type is to begin with, for example. So if you look at it in that way, then it becomes more consonant for a person to kind of perceive the possibility of them going outside the network because it allows them to be the farming network better. <laughs> exactly. Perfectly said, Harry. And so how does the ENTJ mode Harry look like? <laughs> um, when I was 16, I may, have said, I may have jokingly said you wouldn't want to meet him. But <laughs> um, honestly, it can be quite, I guess it's the benevolent, take charge, um, slightly impatient 
um, side of my psyche. When a kind of an outcome has been internally mapped thoroughly, thoroughly aligned with FI in a sense of kind of lively anticipation of it to the extent that if it doesn't go an exact way, it can be very disappointing and maybe even result in a level of kind of anger. Although because of the dominant network, that anger would probably be internalized rather than externalized. Um, but, and it can also result in a lot of tunnel vision and a focus at will capacity, for example. So again, you're seeing those two sides of, of the brain. You have that FI and I interaction, that ignition switch of like, this has to happen in this exact way, for example, and then a TESE execution going into an intense portion of the external world and saying, this is going to happen. Let's take ownership of it, but also dismiss a lot of things which aren't relevant at the same time. So it also has a dismissive quality. So I guess in terms of my own behavior, I can become a lot edgier, I suppose, a lot more impatient, a bit of a shorter fuse, but also just a bit of a get out of his way, not in the sense of I'm going to hurt people, of course, but just in the sense of it's just better to leave him to do his own thing because he's obviously set on a very specific outcome. <laughs> I guess people access a seemingly ENTJ or ESTJ mode when they have an outcome they want in their mind, a to-do list item that they really want done, and then they're willing to cut throats, take names for it. Exactly. So yeah, and then if you, I'll just uh, say a little tidbit of cool information, maybe you subscribe this to like a, if you want to like tell the difference between like if it's more of an ENTJ network or an ESTJ one look at the ease of prioritization and look how easily you can dismiss things essentially because ten is a harder time letting go of lots of different things you can bring together um than tese does essentially tese is kind of like okay let's just do this then you punch through and then you kind of maybe just ignore a lot of irrelevant details um well irrelevant additional bonuses you could have got for example there's more opportunism within TENE. It's like, oh, but that could also be good. Why don't we bring this in? Oh, I can ask this person to collaborate as well. Then we can all be this big ecosystem, et cetera. Um, that's just a cool little way of noticing, just ease of prioritization. Mm, yeah. Yeah. The NE has ideas that they don't want to close down too prematurely. Mm. And ESTJ will be more spread out, have the eggs in many baskets, uh, so yeah. to speak. Whereas the ENTJ is more single minded. It's eggs in a singular basket. It's the golden egg. <laughs> it's the golden egg, yeah. <laughs> and sometimes ESTJs can even think they're ENTPs or ENFPs because of that. that the the yeah, strong so and it's, yeah. it's, it's very often, yeah. So. <laughs> so many ESTJ, like, I get quite a few. I'm not going to say a lot, but quite a few um, ESTJs have come in as clients as mine, like thinking they're ENTP. And, you know, my dominant client base is ENTPs. It's not like I'm trying to like gateway um, the type of type. Lots of people is ENTPs, but I type so many people as ENTPs probably that it's especially noticeable when it's like a, and it's an ESTJ instead. It's just like that FI, you can't really conceal it, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's so true. <laughs> a lot of the ESTJs in my life think they're ENTP because they resonate very strongly with their thinking function. So they, they, they realize that at least, but then they go the ENTP direction. Because they can, they can resonate a lot with their extroverted intuition, so they can see themselves as an ENTP, or like they can even fancy ENFP for two seconds, and then they'll realize that. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> but it is a serious epidemic. Like, I, it's such a common mistype. It happens so often. It's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, it is. It really is. Um, it's just kind of interesting how good e ESTJs can be in arguments. Um, I think that's maybe a good part of it too. Like the whole stereotype of ENTPs are the master debaters, etc. ESTJs can definitely, well, lots of other types can give that stereotype a run for its money, but ESTJs tend to be underrated um, conversationalists in general. It's true, yeah. ESTJs are really good at talking. Extroverted mm -hmm. intuition is a very verbally expressive function. So in general, they're going to be good at verbally expressing themselves. Because awesome. it's like they're cl connecting ideas in real time. So it's this ease of just talking. <laughs> yeah, you need the external medium. It's a door and board, a canvas, so to speak. Yeah. Another way you can tell apart ESTJ and ENTJ is their authority function, as you see in Harry's system. So the ESTJ, you're going to see more introverted sensing, at least as an authority. So more adherence to rules or when they do innovate things, it's more of a tweak of the existing SI template. And so you'll just see more SI precedence based in the ESTJ, 
Whereas in the ENTJ, there's not as much introverted sensing holding them back. So with the ENTJ, they have the NI authority. So they they trust their sense of knowing way more. Mm. A good way of like looking at SI authority versus NI authority as well. It's like SI authority is kind of like, well, what do we want? Okay, like what can we already use? What's already here? If you know what I mean? It's like Lego building in some ways. Yeah. It's like, okay, this is here, this is here, this is here. Let's put it together. So it can be very innovative, like a lot of that. You know, inventors and stuff have been SI authorities, etc. Um, but like NI authorities, more like, well, don't really know what's here right now, but let's just, you know, um, manifest it through sheer force of will or vitality and charisma. You often get a lot more of that kind of attitude there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> With SI, there's way more SI cataloging what has been done in the past. So that it, it's mm -hmm. like, yeah, they, they take things before that have been done and then work with that and play with that. Whereas um, NI innovation tends to be more of a systemic root innovation because they're not necessarily looking at the individual parts as the individual parts. It's Some more like yeah. looking at the whole of the thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Point. All right. And so Harry, are there any other networks in you? <laughs> I'm sure there's there's all of the networks in me. Um, I think if anything, I just as I'm growing as an individual, I want to be more aware of more transient jumps because it's like again, like it's difficult to really take notice because you have to be very used to a network in order to really say when you're not using it. If you know what I mean, so you really need to get get used to it and familiarize. Like, what does this feel like? You're not just somatically not just in terms of what does it look like, but like, what is it like, you know, in terms of my neural network, what does it feel like in some levels? Like what areas of my brain are currently lighting up? You wouldn't necessarily feel that sensorily, but you would kind of feel that in your thoughts. And you say like, okay, it's, this seems to be happening. And then you'll say, maybe you'll say like a change of environment. And then you'll just want to be curious without trying to like detach in order to retreat to your own kind of like familiar territory. You might say, okay, now I've been perturbed as a system what's that causing my brain to do? Am I just using the, the previous thoughts kind of style that I did before? Or am I doing a different style of thought, for example? Like, is am I reacting the same way emotionally as I was before? Or am I reacting a different way? Like, there's different things to take notice of. And like, you can say 16 types, you can say 32, you can say 64. I think 16 is already hard enough. If like, if I'm only spending like 0.5% of the day in an ESFP state, for example, I'm going to have a difficult time. If that's sped out for 24 hours, I'm not really going to notice that very often. Um, but I think it is fun to notice these things. And I think those are the types I've mentioned so far that I can notice myself using without feeling like I'm guessing or just trying to like fit something that doesn't, you know, without necessarily trying to like, place a jigsaw piece into a puzzle that doesn't necessarily fit, but like trying to force it in without doing that kind of stuff. I'm sure there's a, a Latin term for that. I just don't know it off the top of my head. Um, but it's just about being curious, I guess. Like, am I really in this NITI state right now? And then like, you have to get used to being metacognitive in a way that's outside of your type too. Because if my metacognition, my awareness of myself thinking is NITI all the time, then I, as soon as I'm aware of myself being ESFJ, I'm going to become an INFJ again. That's not how metacognition has to work because every type can have metacognition, if that makes sense. It's like it's getting used to being conscious of yourself being another type without that consciousness, you know, automatically reverting you to your primary one. <laughs> yeah, we have many survival strategies that we unconsciously use throughout the day that adapt different networks. And in a way, you can become fluent in that network too. The more you go to it, you, you can become really great at it as well, too. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And so I'm curious, how much time do you spend in your NITI network in comparison to the other networks? Hmm. Um, great question, because hmm, I'm probably not going to be able to give you a number. Yeah, <laughs> um, but I'd say I spend like, um, it must be half the time, because if I'm in a different context, if I'm traveling, for example, or if it involves like interacting with a lot of people, maybe in group dynamics, for example, I know I'm not going to be in that state necessarily even half the day but i still like as, as uh, like any good introvert does feels a big pull towards kind of like a prolonged amount of you know solitary retreat where i might like see a few people once a week and i'll just be like okay the rest is just me time if i'm in that state like i have been this week i just got back from the states for example i've spent like 80 percent of my time in niti um which has been nice you know maybe a bit of SIFI as well, like the ISDJ kind of side to some extent. Um, that, those are kind of my, my retreats, my introverted retreats, I suppose. Um, but like if I've been 
you know, traveling and stuff, and mainly in kind of like FENE kind of stuff, or maybe, I don't know, maybe some kind of directive TESE strategies too. Um, but I'd say, yeah, so it's hard to say across the board because I think it depends upon my actual lab context. Because I think sometimes I've got a more social context, I'm seeing lots of people and bouncing around, et cetera. Over time, I'm like, okay, my brain's had enough. It needs a detox. Let's go back to square one. And you can say, like, it's a yin and yang thing to some extent, too. I'd say in my more introverted phase, I spend 80% of my time in my INFJ state, though. That's the best um, I can do for a specific answer to that question. <laughs> Got it. And you mentioned you sometimes go to the ISTJ part. So I'm wondering, yeah. how does that look like? Cool. So, like, within CBT, there's, like, a, there's a term dormant state um where kind of like you have your dominant functions which are normally very active functions but what if we're being an introvert and we don't want to actively be an introvert what if we're not actively thinking for example what if we're not kind of churning these internal energies and reforming our internal landscape what if we just want to rest well in that particular sense if you kind of surrender control of your dominant functions as an introverted type it's different for extroverts and they're just like relinquish that control then theoretically you kind of subside into the lower end of that continuum where you already have SIFI. Like INFJs already have SIFI, like a strong concretized sense of internal um, self-concept and values, for example, in a more divergent way, pushing the ego forward. But if you just rest in it, then you can say, oh yeah, this is peaceful. Yeah, I am this thing. I'm not theorizing about it. I'm just existing in this particular kind of state of mindfulness, I suppose. Um, and I think, every well every type will have a different dormant state for example like an isfjs would be much more kind of like nifi-ish for example like they'll feel more ethereal a little bit they wouldn't feel that warm kind of like center of fisi churning away it's maybe nostalgic tendencies or something um but yeah lots of interesting I don't know, things that I could talk about experientially in that kind of dormant state. But yeah, I definitely like to dip into that. Um, I definitely have that FI-ish, SI-ish kind of zone where I'm just like, I'm not TIing anymore. I'm just, I've had enough of TIing. I don't want to NI anymore either. I'll just have the alternative. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, very interesting. Very interesting. So thank you, Harry, for coming out today and talking about the scientific study you plan on embarking on the networks theory in CBT and the different ways in which you relate to ENFP, ENTJ, ISTJ, and ESFJ. Yes. And so, yeah, it's very cool to see how type fluidity plays out in you and how you really want to be able to see type in a way where you are in your primary network, but there is also other networks that you go into due to your survival needs on a day-to-day -day basis, don't always need NITIing. And so mm -hmm. as human beings, like you said, you're not going to try to force a puzzle piece to fit where it doesn't fit. You're going to, an NITI isn't going to NITI in a non-ideal mm -hmm. NITI place. And after mm -hmm. a while, NITIing too much, that can be really exhausting too. So it's- like, Oh, totally. Yeah, I'm sorry <laughs> Yeah, and I just want to kind of like end on, well, first of all, thanking you, Joyce, for having me over here. I really appreciate it. Um, and also, I just want to mention just about like scientific discovery within a theoretical realm anyway. The best thing you can do is just kind of create a theory which allows information to be gathered. So it's not about saying this is this and this is this. That's not really what CPT is about. But it's about saying, well, if we can move about in all of these ways, then we can just gather more information. So, and then it's falsifiable too. So, you know, you don't have to go into ESFJ mode, but if there's a possibility of doing so, there's another column within a data bank, for example, you can add information into. So it's just about capturing more of the variants of change within individuals, rather than saying you are this and you are that. <laughs> yeah, it's what I try to do with my channel too. So I want to know the spectrum of INFJ. Like what are the INFJs that access a more ENTJ mode? What are the INFJs that access more of their other other sides of their mind? Or what does trauma or life experience do to a type? How much can you stretch a type? What is the outer boundary of a type? That's interesting. Mm -hmm. Because then if you understand the outer boundaries, you understand all of it because you then you know the extent to which it can reach. And so you actually get the totality, the full territory of the type mapped out, not just a narrow part of the map of the type mapped out. So, yeah, awesome. I'm really enjoying the work you're doing with the scientific discoveries that you're embarking on for that very reason. And yeah, thanks for this chat. It was great.
talking to you and seeing a little bit of your ESFJ mode today in action. <laughs> Thanks, Joyce. It's been a pleasure. All right. Thanks, everyone, for watching. See you all in the next episode. Bye. Thank you.